1: My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month, for a live, inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. And here's a secret, it's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now, check it out. It's at JohnOlearyInspires.com forward slash studio. One more time, it's JohnOlearyInspires.com forward slash studio studio. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary. So happy to have you here joining us in the Live Inspired movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I get to bring you amazing, amazing guests to share their story, what they've been through, what they learned, and ultimately what it means to you. We have had on astronauts, we've had authors, we've had Hollywood actors. We've had all kinds of great leaders. And yet this next guest, and he's with me live in studio. When I first heard his story, I thought to myself, there's no way it's real. It's too crazy. It's been through too much and it's too rough to have the persona, the smile, the joy that Andre Norman naturally exudes every day of his life. And yet it is this true story that he has come to St. Louis to share with us today. So I invite you right now, podcast friends and followers to buckle up keep that seatbelt on tight for this one open up your hearts your minds your eyes your journals get that pen ready to roll because i get to introduce you to a guy that i look up to my friend andre norman andre welcome to live inspired with john o'leary
0: i am so happy to be here and i am definitely inspired to be in your presence well that's working both ways and we haven't even
1: started yet (laughs) so let's start for the folks who have not yet heard the name andre norman Tell us a little bit about the work you do today.
0: The work that I do today, I work with um, companies around conversion, around communication and team building. I specialize in working with um, people who are addicted to drugs, dealing with opioids, families, as well as the person who is addicted. I work with gangs, helping them turn their lives around. I train criminal justice agencies and best practices. Mm. And I just go to city to city, and I try my best to be helpful. It changes.
1: It does change. And you change us as you come into our cities. You've been in St. Louis a whole bunch. You've got a great deep, thick network here. And I'm lucky enough to consider myself now part of it. Andre, I was thinking about this interview this weekend, getting ready for it. I went to my mom and dad's. Okay. They live in the same house that they raised me in. They are married together. We have an idyllic neighborhood. It's safe. It's clean. It's it's perfect. And then I thought about you and the childhood that you had, which was completely opposite of the one that I had. Just completely opposite lives growing up. Talk briefly for our listeners about what it was like for you as a kid.
0: Um, Growing up as a kid, it was classic. You've seen in the movies. Dad beats up mom. Mom throws dads out the house. You got single mom, six kids living in the inner city. We call the hood. And you start struggling. And she's trying to keep the lights on. She's trying to keep food on the table. Um, She was a... Refused welfare, so she worked a couple jobs and the kids raised the kids. And I was second youngest, so I didn't really understand everything. And it was just, it was tough. It was tough, definitely. And as we got older, we moved a few times and we ended up in a neighborhood. I went to a new school. And when they tested me in the third grade, they found out I was illiterate. I hadn't learned anything. And luckily for me, a teacher, Miss Oliver, love you, wherever you are, she said, You're not a dummy. You just learn differently. And she took the time to teach me my learning style. And that was the first step and the biggest gift anybody's ever given me in my life. And from that day to this, I am a better person because being illiterate is a whole nother prison. We'll talk about prison. We'll talk about stuff. Being illiterate creates a whole nother prison in itself.
1: You were trapped in that prison, not only through third grade, but the guidance through middle school, through high school, outside of Miss Oliver. It wasn't that good, huh?
0: Outside of Miss Oliver, it got kind of tight because the older I got, the angrier I got because I started realizing that we were poor. I started realizing that my dad wasn't there. I started realizing that other kids had stuff and that I couldn't have. And I started realizing mainly because the kids told me, you're poor, your clothes are dirty, you're dusty, and stuff like that. The kids let you know. And the kids let me know that I was different. And my different was just I had less than. And my different was I had didn't have a dad.
1: When you are different and you have less than and you are illiterate and you are imprisoned and you are struggling emotionally, it's natural to me that you would reach out to anybody for community. right? And you, it seems like you uh, you reach out to the
0: wrong group, but I understand why you would choose community. I chose the streets and I chose gangs not because I wanted to be a tough guy. I wanted new sneakers. I wanted to be cool. I wanted to have friends. I wanted to be accepted. Nobody wanted to be friends with the kid with dirty clothes nobody wanted to be friends with the kid who didn't use deodorant nobody wanted to be friends with the kid who just couldn't afford to go anyplace. place you always had to pay for him so nobody wanted to be my friend because i didn't have the things to be friends with people at the time so when i went to the street and started selling marijuana in the park it wasn't because i want to be a gangster i wasn't trying to be tough i just wanted to be accepted and to be accepted at that level you needed stuff if you think you can go to middle school and get by with two pairs of pants, it's not going to happen.
1: Are you saying, just to kind of put a timeline on it, that in middle school you're already in a park selling marijuana?
0: Sixth grade. It came it came In fifth grade, we didn't know we were poor. Elementary, everybody was didn't know. We just played on the playground. We ran around. You we went home. You we went back to school the next day. Middle school, kids are now walking to school. Kids have designer clothes. Kids have boyfriends and girlfriends. It was none of that in, middle, in elementary. And then they start letting you know who has what and who doesn't. And it became real apparent In sixth grade, I found out we were poor. Never knew before then.
1: Not long after sixth grade, you are a 14-year-old kid. One of the things that you did well, actually, was play the trumpet.
0: Oh, Miss Ellis, my sixth grade teacher, we had band when I was in school. Everybody was in the band. And she gave me a trumpet because she thought I couldn't break it or lose it. It was only one movable piece, the mouthpiece. (laughs) And since I spent my entire middle school on punishment, I don't know about you. My entire middle school, I was on punishment for something. So I'd be playing my trumpet as something to do. Then the true reason I got good was my sister would be on the phone, and I'd play my trumpet as loud as I could to annoy her. My brother would be watching TV. I'd play my trumpet as loud as I could to annoy him. And I was like the annoying brother. Yes. And I used my trumpet to annoy people. And then by by chance, I got good at it. (laughs) You got good at it, but for
1: some reason you stopped playing it. Why would you give it up?
0: When I finished middle school, Miss Ellis came to me and she said she was sending me to a magnet school for musicians. I wasn't going to the district high school with my buddies, and I argued it, but she said no. And she sent me to the magnet school. I got there, I joined the band. It was all nerds, and I was like the only thug in the band. And then my thug, I would hang out in the band in the morning and play music. Then in the afternoon, I hang out with the tough guys. Then in the morning, I go to the band. In the afternoon, I hang out with the tough guys. Then one afternoon, the tough guy said to me, what is that thing that you're carrying, referring to my trumpet? I told him what it was. They told me it was stupid. Black people don't play the trumpet. You need to get rid of that. There's no future in it. And I didn't want to get rid of it. And they said, the trumpet or us? And my mom wasn't around. My dad wasn't around. I'm not really super close to my siblings. My favorite sister was off to college. And all I had was my friends. So I gave up my trumpet to be with them.
1: Well, you go all in with them. You start making decisions that are going to influence the arc of your life. You start in the park in fifth and sixth grade selling marijuana. It goes uh, it goes downhill from there. It goes
0: downhill from there. And I tell people, growing up poor was horrible, but people have made it. Growing up without a dad, I don't wish on anybody, but people have made it. But trying to grow up without a dream, it'll never work. And when I gave up my trumpet, I gave up my dream. So I, it was all over, right? The day I put that trumpet on the shelf... I was done for. I just didn't know it. First time in jail? First time in jail, I was a freshman in high school. I actually beat up the senior class president and got an assault and battery charge. That was my first case ever. And then it just robbery, 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 in and out of juvie, in and out of juvie. Then I hit 17. There's a magical line Mm -hmm. where you become an adult. And the same thing you did last week is now as an adult child. Instead of three months in juvie, they're talking 30 years in the penitentiary. And I found out real quickly that line. When you look back on
1: that line and the decisions you were making, do you view yourself in retrospect
0: as a bad kid? I did very bad things. So in that instance, I was definitely a bad kid. But I was a bad kid based on bad choices that I was making. I could have been a good kid. I was an extremely talented musician. I was in Mr. Duvall's leadership class, and I did rock climbing. I did a lot of good things, but it was definitely, I have a saying, you are who you are at your lowest self. Wow. So in that instance, not trying to dress it up, I was a bad kid. Well,
1: I also think you are at your you are who you are at your highest self, and uh, the journey toward that is what we get to chat about for the remainder of the podcast. Now you say that
0: because I'm not mugging you in the alley. That's right. Well, man,
1: you're aren't we both right? We we try to put on one image or the other, but the reality is we are yes and we are both are both the we lowest both. and the highest of ourselves. I agree. Unfortunately, before you get to the highest of yourself with a little bit of help and guidance, you've got to hit rock bottom. Do you remember your first charge when you were no longer being sent toward juvie? But now
0: you're you're going to the real, the real place, man. I, my mother came to court one time, and they started reading off charges. And her face turned—she looked so blue that the judge called a recess and said, get that lady some water. Because she didn't know this kid. She's like, that's not my son. And who was this person they're talking about? And it was too late for her, and it was too late for me. And I stood in court one day, and they started reading off sentences. Seven to ten years, armed robbery. Nine to ten years, armed assault. Nine to ten years, armed assault. Ten years, robbery. Ten years, kidnapping. Fifteen to twenty years, armed home evasion. Fifteen to twenty years, armed carjacking. Five years, possession of a firearm. It's about a hundred years there. Then they put me in a van, they drove me to the penitentiary, and they dropped me off. And then what? Scared to death. (laughs) How, How old were you? I was about 18 years old. And I was, I was terrified. Where were you? We never talked about where you grew up. What I grew up in Boston, this? Massachusetts, and went to Massachusetts State Penitentiary at 18.
1: Man, so I, I've had the honor. And for me, it's a little different because I come on wearing a button-up shirt, and I leave hours later wearing that button-up shirt. I've had the honor of going into several penitentiaries and, uh, and meeting with the guys and, and just sharing the story and encouraging them. But I got to tell you, every single time in, I'm scared every single time. And that's what I know I'm going to have guys around me watching me and guarding me and then leaving with me three hours later. You're walking in at age
0: 18 with a hundred years staring you in the face. What's that? What's that like? You're terrified. And anybody who says they're not, they're lying. I mean, I was the toughest guy in my neighborhood. I was the toughest guy in juvie. I was the toughest guy in the county jail, but now I'm in with the big boys. And this is not to be played with. And I got there. I was fearful of being raped. I was fearful of being stabbed. I was fearful of just who knows the boogeyman. I didn't know what was coming. And it's a new place. And they say, you go to a new level, you meet a new devil. And I got there. I was terrified. And I made it up in my mind, the first person who comes near me, I'm just going to punch him in the face. Hmm. And they, I'm just going to go all out fighting. And I got to the unit, got my bed rolling my hand, and the guy walked up and he said my name. I'm ready to start fighting. Then I realized it was my buddy Melvin from the dummy class back in elementary school. And I, he's like, what took you so long? We knew you were coming. It was like all the kids from the dummy class, from the principal's office, from juvie, who used to cut school and go to the movies, they were all at the prison waiting for me. In saying that today, what does that mean to you? That means that— And, um, and maybe, Andre, what does it? What should it mean to all of us? It means that—I um, it's, I had a, actually got a call this morning from a friend of mine named David Sands. He's out of Atlanta. Um, he, he has a whole brand, Sleepless for Suckers, and he's out. He talks every day. He works with kids. He called me this morning from, from California. He's, he went to a school yesterday, and it's called— in Los Angeles is called non-public schools. He said, Andre, I saw the school-to-prison pipeline. Mm. He said, I saw it. It's completely real. He said, i never understood it before. They have a whole section in Los Angeles for kids who are just there to fail. And he said, these kids are going straight to prison, if they're lucky. And he was just blown away on how bad it was for these kids. And I told him, I said, now that you know, your job when you go back in there today is not to encourage them with entrepreneurship. Don't tell them any clever stories. Tell them you're there to save their lives and give them information that can help save their lives. Because that's what this is. And he says he got it.
1: For our listeners, many of them driving to work or hanging out poolside, whatever it may be, in some regards, positions of privilege. Hearing your story and now hearing you say the entire system is busted, guiding people, pipelining them into jail, that's grossly unfair. Maybe those kids need to own their lives. Andre, how
0: how would you respond to that? I would say you can't control who your parents are. You can't control if they're gonna help you with your homework. You can't control at an eight, nine year old level if they're gonna give you a safe place to live. You can't control if you stay in a shelter. You can't control if you have food. So, if you have bad or non compliant or negligent parents, the kids are gonna suffer. So, we're blaming a 10 year old because he has bad parents. And there are such things as bad parents. And this kid's not getting homework, he's not getting proper nutrition, he's not safe and whoever, whatever list of things that are going wrong in their lives, then they go to school mm. and they they watch their mother be beaten. They've sought drugs in the neighborhood. They, they, they're they cold or hungry at night. When they show up to school they're not able to learn. So Los Angeles has so many of them, they just shipped them onto a system called non-public schools. So essentially you graduate
1: from the non-public schools. You've been pipelined now at age 18 into this system and you've got to make a decision uh, how do I respond to this new level? And you said a new level, new devil. What new does level, that mean? New,
0: a new level, new devil. When you're doing bad, every time you go to a new space, there's a devil there waiting for you. You thought you dealt with the last one, then you get to the next one. It's the same thing when you're doing good. When you go to another level, devil exists. There's somebody out there, something out there trying to tear you down. It's that their cosmic force that's going against you It's called negativity. And whatever space that you're in, good or bad, there's going to be a force to, you're going to have to push against. There's no triumph. There's no victory. There's no challenge without you having to push against something. Under you
1: uh, you meet this kid from your school on day one. He comes up and gives you a hug and says, hello.
0: Welcome welcome home, man. Yeah, uh, we're at the prison. It wasn't at school. <laughs> Tell me what happens next. They hand me a pair of sneakers. We go out to the yard. We start playing basketball. And when I first got to the prison, there was a nice case, lady, case worker caseworker. Who sat me down and told me how I can go to school and how I can behave and how I can earn jail credits and how I can get a degree, how I can learn plumbing. And I was on sighted. I called my mom, like, Mom, they have a lot of great programs here. Yeah. And I got to the unit and the guys rounded me up and said, Listen, you said, Dre, you see them white guys over there? They're going to kill you because you're black. You see them Spanish guys over there? They're going to kill you because you're black. You see them black guys over there? They're going to kill you from because you're from the other side of town. So you can go with, I said, but the, the lady said, I can go to plumbing. The lady said, I can go to school and get a degree. She said, is the lady going to help you when they come to rape you? Is the lady going to help you when they come to cut your throat? When they come to take your stuff? Where's that lady going to be? So you can hang with us or you can go with that lady. And so I threw her little pamphlet in the trash and I picked up a knife and got in line. (laughs) You're describing this incredibly dark, dire nightmare.
1: It's a nightmare. And I'm curious, are you... um are you sharing the worst of the experience? or No, man. This is the experience. And if you don't adapt to it, you die. If you don't adapt to die. Am I just Pollyanna thinking, man, w- w- there's always hope for civility?
0: Not in the maximum
1: security prison. Is that prison. right? I mean, it just lost, the,
0: man. It just does not there's exist. There's no civility in the maximum security prison at all with no gods around. There might be civility under the gun towers. There might be civility... Under the watch of gods. At eleven zero five, when the gods walk out the door to go count the rest of the building, civility leaves with them. How has that truth
1: influenced your experience, not only there but even subsequently? I mean,
0: for me, it would paint a very dark picture of the world and the people in it. Prison is a subworld. It's like in the movies. It's like you. It's like people who play video games—they go into the subworld. It doesn't exist. It's just all on the screen. It's like you're in the TV and you can't get out. Literally. Literally. And it was a sub-world. And that day, day, I hurt that man, not out of being tough, but out of, because I was scared for my own safety. And you learn that you try to avoid bad decisions and bad situations, but the whole prison is a bad situation. So you're living in a bad situation, so you can't avoid it but I grew up in a bad situation.
1: So you project strength in this case and you make a decision that of course impacts someone else's life forever.
0: What happens after that, Andre? They move you to another prison. Then they move you to another prison and I got moved to like nine different states for being violent and incorrigible. Then I find myself in segregation, locked in a basement for two and a half years for stabbing other prisoners. And while I was in that, in that space, an epiphany happened. I saw I saw a light, and I said, you know something? I don't want to die in jail. And I remember Miss Oliver telling me that I was a good person. Mm. I remember Mr. Bevilacqua, my sixth-grade math teacher. I remember Mr. McDonald, my sixth-grade English teacher. I gave fits. <laughs> Mr. Solis, who was my guidance counselor in high school. And all the teachers who had ever spoke kind words to me. So if there's a teacher listening, mm. please speak kind words to your kids and never stop. And if you're a parent and you think your kids are just out of control and they're not listening, they might seem like they're not listening. Speak the kind words to them. Because that day when I wanted to change my life, it was those kind words that I was able to hang on to. And it's like going into the wind with a shield. I've seen people try to turn their lives around in prison, but they had nothing to hold on to. And they got blown back into the pile. When I made my turn, the kind words of Miss Oliver, Mr. Bevelacqua, Mr. McDonald, Miss Solis, all those kind words became my shield against the negativity that was trying to blow me back into the pile.
1: How old are you when you make this pivot? 24. I would imagine some pivots take place too late in life. I'm, I'm amazed to be seated across from a guy who has a hundred years facing him in jail, who has stabbed numerous people, who finds himself in solitary confinement for two and a half years, man. And here we are having this one-to-one as friends. How did you
0: make that pivot? Everybody in prison and everybody on drugs and everybody in a company who ha- who's living a bad life or a life that they don't want, at some point, they say to themselves, I don't live this life anymore. So whether you're sitting in the boardroom, you're sitting at the kitchen table agonizing over your kid, or you're sitting in a maximum security prison cell, you're going to have your epiphany moment that you don't want to live this life. The question is, are you going to take the courage to change? Right. So the, the, the thought's going to come. Then why? The question is, do you have the courage to back it up?
1: Well, you have the courage to not only cast this thought, which is a pretty radical thought from solitary confinement, but to do something about it. You, you, you spend the next eight or so years working on you.
0: Eight years every day, I taught myself how to read. I taught myself the law. I, taught, I went to counseling, and I had a slight anger management problem. <laughs> a slight one. So I started working on my anger management. I didn't think I could come home and be successful and stab people in the face. So I wanted to go to Harvard University. And I don't think that's appropriate behavior for Harvard oh. on the yard. They have We have a big yard. They had Harvard Yard. Somebody told me on Harvard Yard they don't stop people. Uh, they're right. So I had to change me to fit into the world I wanted to go into. And every day, all day for eight years, I did just that. And I worked on making myself better in spite of the fact that I had a gazillion years and I had no family support. And I had no guidepost. There was nobody in prison talking about going to Harvard but me. So there was nobody I can really have a conversation with. So I just kept my focus on my dream. And I remember when I gave up my dream in the ninth grade. And when I got this dream, as crazy as it was, it was my dream. Uh, but you also had a couple other characters who started showing up. Talk about the rabbi. Uh, <laughs> you, you, you could see me smiling right now. Um, Natan Schaefer is an angel sent on from heaven. Um, I so met Say him. the name again. I missed Natan it. Schaefer. Natan He's Schaefer. He's my rabbi. Um, Orthodox Jewish rabbi. He lives in Massachusetts. He's like the most wonderful man on the planet, bar none. I love everybody, but none bigger than a ton. When I was in the unit one day, I met a guy. He was getting bullied. I hated bullies because I used to be really short as a kid. So I stood up for the kid, older man. mine. And then later on, we used to say he was kind of semi-touched. So I would say hi to him. Mm. And one day we were in the program building. And I walked by and I saw him sitting down. So I go in to say hi to him. And he introduced me to his friend. And I said, what are you doing? He said, we're studying. So I came down and study with him, and lo and behold, he had like— I didn't notice the yarmulke. I didn't know what it was. Didn't recognize the black suit and the white shirt. <laughs> and the tefillin didn't really—I didn't know what that was. I just figured it was just what he was wearing. Then I found out he was an Orthodox Jewish rabbi. And it wasn't about me becoming Jewish or him becoming black. He taught me lessons on how to be human. Mm. Respect, forgiveness, humanity, being helpful, being courteous, gratitude— Stuff that nobody had ever taught me before. I've been taught how to choke somebody out, how to to survive three days without eating, how to handle being strapped to a bed, how to make a knife out of a chair. Nobody taught me how to say I'm sorry. Mm. And And then this
1: Jewish rabbi comes in
0: and teaches
1: you how to be women.
0: Every Wednesday night, me and Natan, and people didn't understand while I was hanging out with him, but he was teaching me the things I need to learn how to make myself a better person. And subsequently, I got two nuns. <laughs> right. I got invited to a program called Cresillo so I could crash course in Christianity for fallen Catholics or people who drifted. I want to say fallen. And they, a friend invited me, even though I wasn't Catholic, I went, I did the weekend. It was the most beautiful weekend of my life. And I've gotten married, I've had a kid. Um, I've done a lot of things. The Casillo weekend was the most beautiful weekend of my life and I got to know God, and I joined the church.
1: We've heard about these two, the, the, the rabbi, and yes. all that you learned from him, oh, essentially about how to be a human. Human. How to meet people where they are, man, and how to see less of the differences and more of the similarities, and how God works in all of our lives. What did you learn
0: from these two, nun- these two nuns? Two nuns were just like, I love my mom. I and my mother reborn. But They were like, I love. I have my favorite aunt, Auntie Tina, but they were just like right there. They're like super nurturing. My mother was, like, kind of strict, kind of straightforward. She taught me to be tough because I lived in a tough situation. So she didn't have time for all the hugs and kisses and the trips to the park. And so my mom had to teach us how to stay alive. That was her main thing. Let me teach my sons how to stay alive. Mm. And so we didn't get to, like, the kinder, gentler side of mom. <laughs> so these nuns were, like, the moms that I didn't yeah, have. Right. My mom was never a bad person, but she just—she she had a task. I got three black boys in America— we are living in a bad situation. And she taught us skills to stay alive. And that didn't include saying thank you. It didn't include holding out doors for people. It taught us how to keep breathing. That was her primary function.
1: And then, so you're, then along come these two older nuns, two and they nuns. teach you to hold open doors they and te- say thank you. And hey, please.
0: You, you learn how to open the door for a nun. How do you not open the door for a nun? <laughs> <laughs> Sister Ruth and Sister Kathleen, how do you not open the doors for a nun? I how, don't know. I've never tried it. Yeah, well, you don't. You, you have to. You know what I'm saying so. They were like there for me, and they were just every day. I'd go to I go to services to mass. I go to mass, and we sing the songs. We do. I listen to the homily, and it was just great. And they were just there. I actually went to visit them like three months ago, and that's that's my folks. Andre, the door
1: opening for nuns is one thing. That's that's etiquette, it's chivalry. What begins to open the door out of penitentiary back into life? They, opened it, they kicked me out.
0: Did they kick you out? They, November 15, 1999, they put me out of At prison. age 32. At age 32. They said, it's time to go. After 14 After years. After 14 years. 14 straight years. 14 straight, door to door, no breaks. What is it like, man, when you walk out for that first time? Scared. It was just like walking in. It's a world I don't know. They had, they had cars that talked to you. They had ATMs. They had cell phones. They had the internet. I mean, there was no internet when I was a kid. It was, there was no cell phones. They had, like, the big shoebox cell phones when I was a kid. So, I mean, people got cell phones now. It was just a whole different world. And what I what I used to do, I volunteered at the juvenile center because the kids asked me to come volunteer there. So I would go to the juvenile center, which was a lock facility. Mm. So for the first five, six months, I was at the lock facility almost every day because I felt comfortable there. It gave me a break from the fast-paced world. And I'd go to the lock facility— and I volunteered. They were like, he's here an awful lot. Yes. <laughs> they didn't know I needed it for my peace of mind. When did you begin finding peace of mind outside of a locked facility? When I started finding my purpose, I started talking to the kids in juvenile. Then I started going to the high schools. And I started going to the churches. I'll go to the CCD classes because I'm still hanging out to, with the Catholic nuns and the priest. And I started just finding things to fill my day. After 14 years and they throw you out in the street, your day's empty. As I was able to fill my day and my day had purpose and meaning, it got me through the day.
1: I would imagine some of the listeners, and if not our listeners, uh, me, I'm, I'm curious, 14 years when you were facing 100, and that is before you stabbed,
0: how many, how many guys
1: did you injure in, in
0: penitentiary? I technically was convicted for two attempted murders. I say nothing beyond that.
1: Okay, so we have a man who admits to being accused at least twice.
0: Not convicted twice.
1: Convicted twice. Uh, It seems almost shocking that they would even let you
0: out after only, in quotes, 14 years. Know something? I worked hard for those last eight. I I mean, normally I should have done 20-something years, but I actually worked hard. I changed my life. I was able, through the courts, not through the institution, take years off my sentence And when I went to the parole board, I told them what I was going to do. I said, I'm going home. I'm going to make a difference. I've committed to going to Harvard University. And I told them my dream. And I told them my purpose. And they gave me the opportunity to actually go live my purpose.
1: You've been speaking around the world subsequently, including right here in St. Louis, during the riots of August, was it August 2015? Yes. We invited a guy who knows how to, um, how to move an audience to move ours. A guy named Andre Norman comes to St. Louis to help uh, calm the storm. Remind our listeners in the chance that they forgot what I'm referring to, what happened in Ferguson and then ultimately why you were called in.
0: What happened in Ferguson, It was a young man named Michael Brown Jr. who was shot and killed by a local Ferguson police officer. There's a discrepancy around, there was a struggle, there was a, something happened, and the officer shoots the guy and the and the kid dies. Michael Brown Jr. dies on the sidewalk in his housing development. And I believe his body stayed on the sidewalk for some ungodly amount of time, like eight, nine hours. He's like outside on the sidewalk. The neighbors get enraged, the family gets enraged. It's just like that one thing that sparks everything and protests, riots, just uprival. People are just angry, they're frustrated, and the whole neighborhood disrupts. And almost for the next year, you have protests, you have riots, you have tear gas, you have police getting shot, you have all kinds of madness. Then the following December, the verdict or the decision from the DA or the district attorney, whoever made the decision not to indict or charge a police officer. So it doubles down and it goes to a whole nother level. And I know a lot of people in St. Louis, I've worked with them, and I got a call from an EO named Dan Curran. I got a call from Dave Spence. I got a call from a few people. They're like, Andre, can you come to St. Louis? Because most people don't know Ferguson is like borderline. It's St. Louis. it's St. Louis. I had been to Ferguson 20 times didn't know it. No, right. It's just like you cross a line. It's like cross the street. You're in Ferguson. Cross the street, you're in Jennings. Cross the street, you're in back in St. Louis. So when I came, uh, me, and, me and Dan, a nice white guy who lives someplace out here, cool dude, love Dan, and we went out at 2 o'clock in the morning. I, I've seen every politician known to man fly into St. Louis and at two o'clock in the afternoon take a picture out on one of those streets. Then get they're, back there that- at two a.m. Huh? I, we went out at two o'clock in the morning. Dan said, "Are you sure?" I said, "I'm sure." And we went out and we talked to people on the street who were out there protesting, who were out there leading leading the charge. And I asked them, "Why are you out here? How long are you going to be out here? What does a win look like? What do you want?" We started having that dialogue. And then through Dave Spence, who's a local um, guy here, um, we reached out to the mayor and the police chief. And between Dave, Dave made it, because without Dave, we wouldn't got the mayor and the police chief. Right. So Dave gets us the mayor and the police chief. I connected the protesters. We all get on. Dave flew them. He flew the mayor and the police chief to to Harvard. So I'm now working at Harvard Law School. We skipped over that part. <laughs> So we, we all go to Harvard Law that School. That part's just
1: too unbelievable. I want T- people to think office, this podcast no, no. is real, not just a completely fictional story. They can go online. They can, go,
0: they can <laughs> Google Andre Norman Ferguson and Harvard. We'll come
1: back to the Harvard thing in a moment because you know, that is excuse shocking.
0: me. We go, to, we go to my office at Harvard and we have this big symposium. The mayor, the police chief, um, Dave Spence, who ran for governor, three of the protest leaders, and we had a few other folks on the panel, Charles, Shelton. And we're there. We're having a conversation. Now, unfortunately... Some people put on the panel who shouldn't have been. I selected the entire panel. Under some other circumstances, other folks got put on the panel. Um, and they didn't come right. for solutions. They came to vent anger. And they started venting their anger, screaming, and it just turned the whole panel into craziness. And now people are yelling and shouting, calling names. Nobody's really getting anything done. We go back to the hotel, and Dave Spence leads a conversation between the police chief, the mayor, um, Bruce Franks, and a few other the protesters. They sit down. We all have conversation. And at the end of that conversation, everybody agreed that we might not like each other's stances, but we're going to talk to each other like men. And they had conversations that night. Then we all had breakfast together because we're all standing in the same hotel that next morning. Then everybody comes back to Ferguson slash St. Louis and the protesters line up the next night, and the police line up. The difference being the police chief knows the lead protester. So there's no tear gas. There's no beanbags. There's no riots. It's like they do their march, peaceful protest, yes. and it's over. It's When you don't know the other person, you don't know what they're going to do. There's so much we could unpack with this one. So subsequently, no more tear gas, no more beanbags, no more craziness. It goes back
1: to the lesson the rabbi taught you in
0: penitentiary. Yeah.
1: How to to not see a difference, but how to see a similarity, how to see a human being for who he or she might be.
0: If Bruce Franks, who was the lead guy, wasn't willing, if Dave Spence hadn't intervened and got the police chief and the mayor on board, and then they sat through what was for them an ugly panel. They came to talk about solutions, and the whole panel went to the left. And they didn't get up and walk out. They were upset because they were disappointed. It was like they got tricked. It was bait and switch, but they stuck it out. And they, after that, to their credit, they sat down and had the conversation, which brought peace. And then subsequently, Bruce Franks, who was at that hearing and one of the guys that went off, became a state rep for St. Louis. Now he sits with the governor and he designs policy. Well, he's going to sit with the next governor. <laughs> well, he sits with the governor and he designs policy around criminal justice. And Dave Spence started a jobs program called Ferguson 1000 to employ people. And then let's take it all the way back. This is where most people get lost when I get upset. Everything started with Mike Brown Jr. being killed or dying in the street. I sat yesterday here at Mike Brown Sr.'s house because I mentor him. And I sat with Mike Brown Sr. and I mentor him through his pain because at the end of the day, his son is still gone. And we were talking, and this is a lesson straight from the the rabbis and my nuns. I said, if you want to get to a new place and the next level, it's about forgiveness. So yesterday, Mike Brown Sr. has discussed willing to sit down and have that conversation Mm. around forgiveness with the man who killed his son. And I went back and I saw Dave. I said, Dave Spence. I said, listen, Mike Brown Sr. is ready to make a move. Because a lot of people are out here in the streets protesting on his behalf. That's right. They're screaming anger. They're not screaming forgiveness. So he's going to change the entire dialogue to forgiveness.
1: I met with a woman last week whose son was murdered, and I asked her what she thought about forgiveness, and she paused for a long time and responded, you know, John, I don't believe in forgiveness. And then there was another long pause, and she said, I believe in empathy. So I said, tell me about that. And she says, as soon as I'm fully able to empathize with someone else for their behavior— for understanding their history and what led them to that moment in time, I can't help but to forgive them. So in other words, it's not about forgiving. Forgiveness is the natural byproduct when you actually put yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine, imagine being in that spot yourself. That's her take. I think it makes a lot of sense.
0: But I've had a lot of guys and a lot of ladies here in St. Louis area mentor me and love me through some stuff and overlook some things I might not have done right and stuck with me. So when I came back and I sit with Mike Brown Sr., I can take the lessons from a Rusty Keeley, from a Keith Alper, who we love daily, from a Dave Spence, and from a John Rulin, and I can give it to him. People think it is Andre talking. I always tell people, it's not Andre talking. I am the sum total of all of my mentors.
1: You've had some awesome mentors.
0: Tons. And it's
1: led you perfectly here. Do you feel like now your calling in life is to mentor those around you?
0: I've been mentoring people since the third grade i just been giving out some bad advice (laughs) up until the last 18. (laughs) So I can give out a lot better advice now.
1: Uh, Let's talk instead about the advice in third and fourth grade about the advice you give lately. When you speak, let's break it into two groups, Andre. When you speak to business owners, what's the message that you try to
0: convey to them? Business owners generally in business to make money and grow their companies, which is all wonderful. It's the greatest thing ever to be entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs in America. But your entrepreneurship is not gonna work or is not gonna take if you're unhappy. So I can teach you communication. I can teach you team building. I can teach you discipline. I can teach you vision. I can teach you connectivity. But if you're not personally happy, all of it's for nothing. Mm.
1: It's an important lesson that we all need to hear loud and clear today, all of us business owners and uh, students.
0: I've been working with London Business School since 2001. So I've trained KPMG senior execs. I had Jonathan Blumen who was a potential insurance. Our Denon Foods, Vinci Construction, Lenley's Construction. I work with all of their senior advisors, senior management, CEOs across the board. I've been doing YPO speeches for eight years across the country and around the world. The sole thing that makes your business go is when your life is settled. Hmm. Because you are, I can't teach you to be a better business person. You are a great entrepreneur. That's just in you. Now, the thing that's blocking you is what's blocking your entrepreneurship skills. So I say, the same thing I'll say to a 15-year-old Andre, don't speak to my potential. Speak to my pain. Mm. To these business owners, I don't speak to their potential. I speak to their pain. I had an executive, the first time London Business School brought me out, they threw me in a room with Deutsche Bank. It was like 40 execs. I was like, okay, I do gang stuff, and (laughs) I do a lot of other stuff. I've never been in a room with a bunch of bankers before that run like a $50 billion bank. I said, I asked, I said, what's the best thing I can do? Because this is my first presentation to this type of group. This is back in 2002. They said, don't talk to us in banking terms. We know banking. Tell us what you know and trust that we're smart enough to draw the lines. So for all those who are wondering, well, his life doesn't marry my life. If you're smart enough to draw lines, we can get along. No doubt about it.
1: When you speak to kids, whether they are uh, pipelining themselves toward penitentiary or kids who— have the fathers and the mothers who are the business owners. What what is your message in general to children?
0: It's the same but from a different vantage point. When I talk to kids in bad schools and bad settings and parents who might be in prison or on drugs or just absent, being raised by their grandparents, I try to teach them how to ask for help. I didn't recognize my teachers were really there for me. I was so busy waiting for my dad to come save me that I wouldn't accept help from anybody else. Mm. I wanted my mom to be the one to take me to the park, so I wouldn't accept something from somebody else. Not that they were bad people. Psychologically, I just wanted my dad to be my hero. And when you come and the next person comes, I wouldn't receive the help. So I passed up so much good help because of my psychological trauma of wanting it to be my dad. So I have to tell these kids, don't wait on somebody who might not be coming. There are people here right now in your life willing to help you, they're called teachers. They have committed their lives and probably got a garage full of stuff just for you that they paid out their own pocket to help your life be better. Listen up. And for the kids, we call them bubble kids. For the bubble kids, it's just because your parents are wealthy and you have a big house and you have stuff, don't let people shame you into feeling bad because you have. Take advantage of it. And they need to generally find ways to communicate better because they have access to so much stuff that can hurt them a lot faster. Mm. And since they're privileged, and since they're wealthy, and since they're out in certain neighborhoods, they're sheltered from reality. So their bad decisions are hidden. And then once the bad thing pops up, you might ship them off to Utah for a weekend, or ship them out to Wyoming for, for a couple months. But there are very few people in the suburbs who have that outreach skill ability, so they send them to a doctor who over-medicates them in most instances. And medication is where they got what what their problem is now. So I tell the kids in the suburbs, please don't be the one who wraps yourself around the telephone pole. And they're trying to take on the mindset of we can't snitch on our friends and all this other wonderful stuff. You're not snitching on anybody. I don't advocate that at any time. But communicating with your parents, helping your friends stay alive, is definitely important. So I talk to them about being grateful, communicating, and I always tell them, So, what should we do? We want to help people. I tell them, finish your high school diploma. Right. Go get your college degree. Do it like Bill Gates did. Go grow a billion dollar company then set up a foundation and go help people. Do it like Oprah did. Become like a billionaire TV person then go set up a foundation. Don't, what would we be if Bill Gates dropped out of high school or dropped out of college and opened up a soup kitchen? I mean, the foundation wouldn't be there. He's helped millions of people around the world. I tell them young folks, you have access. It would be a shame that you had all this access and you didn't make the best of it.
1: Well, there's a parable in scripture about the talents. If you get one, turn it to two, three, turn it to six, and five, turn it to ten. I think it's really important to maximize whatever talents that you may have. So final question before we pivot to the the Live Inspired Seven. Many of our listeners struggle in life. You know, I I don't think that's common just to us guys and ladies listening right now. It's common to all of us who uh, walk in life what would you say to those of us right now in a storm, someone struggling financially or relationally or at work? What, what, what encouragement might you give all of us?
0: Encouragement I give people. I would give to you. This, if you're out there and you're struggling, and right now I don't care how nice your suit is or how cheap your car is or how that bus ride is treating you, I don't care if your earphones are broke or you got the new iPhone or <laughs> AirPods. It don't matter. If you're struggling and nobody knows it, that's a problem. And if you don't have anybody to call, that's problem number two. So I'm going to say call me. That's it. I mean, it's real simple. Call me. I I hold nothing over your life. I hold nothing over your job. I'm not going to judge you. I just want to help you. My goal in life is to see people stay alive. So, yeah, this random black guy said to call him. <laughs> well, it's better you call me than you keep being miserable. Andre Norman, where, outside of giving your cell phone right now, let's, give them the na- cell phone.
1: let's let's instead give them the website where they can email you and maybe begin the conversation that way. What, what's your what's your website?
0: My website is really difficult now. It is www.AndreNorman.com.
1: We've upgraded. This is a good move. I'm glad you took the advice of your board and your champions. AndreNorman.com. <laughs> dot com. We will have a link to it, of course, on our notes online under we ask every single one of our guests and you happen to be one of my favorites because I love you. Before I started interviewing you, we asked them seven questions. Question number one to them and to you is what is the best book you've ever read?
0: As a man thinketh by James Allen. What was the main takeaway from that? I am in control of my thoughts. Therefore, I'm in control of myself where I'm going to be five years, five months, 10 years down the line the thoughts that I allow to grow into my brain will become flowers in my brain and I will act them out at some point. Mm. So if I control what I think and the thoughts, the things I take into my mind, I thus control what grows in my mind. So I am really super, super vigilant about not listening to dumb stuff, reality TV, and people who just want to ramble on about nothing. I will cut you off in (laughs) 2.3 seconds because I know when you put that crazy thought in my head, and I get it in there, it's, it's going to come weeds. out. It's, it's going to sprout no weeds. It's going to sprout weeds, I don't want it in my head. I've already lived in the weeds. I'm good.
1: Under Norman, what is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed when you were a little boy that you wish you possessed more so today? So not the negative stuff, but what's one positive trait you had as a kid?
0: I laugh way more. Yeah, but as a kid, you laughed a lot I, more? I mean, kind of, sort of. But, I mean, I was just like, I love swimming, and I just, like, love being outside, and... I love traveling. So, I mean, I used to ride the buses after school. i go down to the bottom of a hill, and for a dime, you could get on the bus. I rode all the bus lines, all the train lines, all the model rail. I rode everything they had that was down there for a dime. I I was like, listen. But one thing I had is just my sense of adventure. That's awesome. If your home
1: caught fire, and all living things and individuals are out, and you have an opportunity to run in and
0: grab one item, just one thing, what would you grab? I have, right now... It, it it'd be a tough call. This is I'm gonna. I'm gonna you got I, two I, hands, I, man. I'll let you grab two. Okay, thank you. Because I'm, I'm stick. I would have gave you the one. I hear you. I will give you the one. I'll give you the two. I get it too. At the rabbi's wife, I loved um, psalms, and so she she brought me a a Hebrew, a Hebrew psalm book, and she gave it to me back in '96, and she autographed it and she gave it to me a gift from her to me, and I have that psalm book in my house, and. Initially, then the second thing it would be when I did my Christio, my most beautiful weekend ever, they gave me like a beginner Bible, a New Testament Bible. And I had everybody who was at that retreat sign my Bible. And I'm going around the room like, hey, John, sign my Bible. Hey, priest. And they're like, you can't do that. I like shut up. I got gangster on them. I had everybody sign my Bible. And I still have that Bible. And by the way, everybody else started getting their Bible signed. But I got everybody at that retreat sign my Bible. And I have the Bible and the hymn book sit on a shelf in my bedroom right now. That's awesome.
1: Man, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be seated on that bench next to?
0: My grandfather. Did you meet him? Never got a chance to meet him. What's the first question
1: you would ask grandpa?
0: Um, Is he happy? Because a few months ago I got a call from a sheriff in Petersburg, Virginia, asked me if I would come help their city. And they wanted to know my fees and how much I cost and all the rest of that. And they couldn't afford my fees. I said, I'll come if you do one thing. She said, what? I said, you call my father. She said, call your father. I said, you call my father and I'll come. And she called him and I went, my father was born in Petersburg, Virginia. My grandfather was born in Petersburg, Virginia, like 1905 and they grew up there. And they moved out of the South because it was a bad place for um, blacks at the time. But that's where they born and raised. So I said, if you, Call my dad, I'll come. And me and my dad don't always get along, but I want to be a dutiful son. We've probably never gotten along to this day, but I know that would make his day. And I have a son, so I know happy dad moments. And <laughs> I went to Petersburg, went to the high school that he would have went to. I went to all the neighborhoods. I went back to his old house. And at the end of the week, I sat in the room, the police chief, the fire chief, the commissioners, the mayor, and we called my dad on the speakerphone. And one at a time, They said, hi, my name is the chief of police for the city of Petersburg, and I want to say thank you. They went around the room, and I want to cry now. But (laughs) You're not alone, man. And my father, again, he wasn't the best dad, and he's not the best guy, but he's still my dad. Well, you made him cry, I would imagine, that day, Andre. Cry with pride. And we're going to buy his house that he was born in, and we're going to convert—I'm going to buy the house. We're going to get it renovated. We're going to make it a, a like a transitional home for ladies coming out of badder bad situations or coming out of problems. So it's going to be a plaque in front of that house with my grandfather, my grandmother's name, my uncle's aunt's and my dad. And it's going to be a house for good. And it'll be put in a trust. And for as long as that neighborhood stands, that house will be serving people. Mm. What is the best advice you've ever received? I just got it. Um, you at the table. You, Rusty, Keith, Dan, John, um, Dave. Dave wasn't dead, but he was in proxy by spirit. Um, I had a tough time two years ago, and a really tough time. My life took a tremendous turn, and I hit the lowest point of my life. I mean, I hit the lowest point of my life. Prison was nothing in America. Mm. I hit the lowest point of my life, and I was— they saved me from that low point, but even though they pulled me out of that low point, i was still depressed and i had like kind of given up on being me i actually turned and started going to do some real estate stuff i was doing other stuff i just stopped being me and they brought me in a room they said you're gonna be you because you have a wonderful gift and you have people to help and they said go back to being you
1: i got to meet the you that day and um you blew me away in that breakfast meeting. I was so glad to be part of that. And you shine every time you walk into a room, man. So going back to being you is what we are all called to. But I'm glad you actually took the advice because you, you're perfectly, man. It's a turn on. Here we go. Three final questions. And you've made it through the gauntlet. Okay. And then we uh, and then we we break
0: bread together. Yes, I'm glad we're not on film because y'all can't be seen. No, we I can't, are I can't, right oh, over man. there, man. Okay, you, <laughs> right. you don't have clear focus. That's not an iPhone.
1: That is that is an iPhone. It's gonna shine. I'm gonna zoom in and get those tears on on film. Three questions. Here we go. Number one, what would you tell your 20 year
0: old self? My 20 year old self, I'd have been two years in the penitentiary. Go to school sooner. Um, get counseling, and you could do great things. Um, It's not where you start. It's not who you're around. You have to be your own best friend because I never had a best friend. My best friend died a long time ago. Stop selling yourself short. That's what I did. I sold myself short.
1: Well, you're not selling yourself short anymore. So Andre Norman, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read?
0: Andre Norman helps all people.
1: Andre Norman Friend, speaker, leader, hero, uh, redeemed, inspiration. Man, I want to thank you for helping me and helping all people by being part of our Live Inspired podcast. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being my friend. Hey, if you want to learn more about this great man, you can, of course, always cruise over to our website at johnolearyinspires.com. We'll have links to Andre's work. Or you can just go right over to visit Andre right now, andrenorman.com. Either way, my friends, you're going to be inspired to recognize that your best life is in front of you. So uh, rather than waiting for it, start now. That is Andre Norman sitting to my right. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired. My friends, I want to take a quick moment to give you a special invitation. If you enjoy the Live Inspired podcast, what would you say to joining me live once a month? And not just joining me, but hundreds of other like-minded, Live Inspired community members. And what if you could do it from the comfort of your own home? My friends, Live Inspired in-studio with John O'Leary is exactly this, a gathering of our Live Inspired community members once a month for a live inspirational webcast. Let's do life together. Registration for in-studio only happens twice a year. and Here's a secret. It's opening soon. Don't miss it. Sign up right now. Be one of the very first to know when Live Inspired in-studio registration opens. You can go right now. Check it out. It's at com forward slash studio. One more time. It's com forward slash studio.